Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. With service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. An amazing episode this week. Stay tuned for just a few notes before we get started. I want you guys to follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you are following us, you may have noticed our logo has changed. Yes, we've been telling you about it for a couple of weeks now. Don't be surprised. We've just been working on some updated artwork and uh, trying to rebrand a little bit of of who we are and what we're about, and we figured this is a more appropriate logo going forward. We hope you guys like it. We'd love to hear some feedback on it, so please send us a rating and a review. But don't be alarmed if you see the new uh, new logo and new photographs and whatnot. Uh, also, the new website is coming as well. So all these things are starting to change here with the Hazard Ground, but we hope you'll stick with us. We know you will because these stories that you've been hearing are absolutely amazing like the one we have this week. Before we get to that, just a reminder of our partnership with Amazon. Really, really simple. Go to our website, hazardground.com. Click on that Amazon banner right in the middle of the homepage. Do all your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you spend, and we'll donate it back to some of the great charities you've heard here on the Hazard Ground Project, like the Headstrong Project, an amazing charity that we've been able to donate to, and we want to continue to do so. So continue to shop through Amazon through our website, hazardground.com. Send us an email as well, producer at hazardground.com. Any guests you want to see, any guests you know that you think would be a great feature here on the Hazard Ground, we'd love to hear from you. All that out of the way, now let's get on to this week's amazing episode here on the Hazard Ground. Joining us this week is a retired Navy SEAL. He is a former Navy lieutenant who also happened to go to Ranger School. He is a 21-year Navy veteran, had multiple deployments to South America prior to 9-11, multiple deployments in the war on terror, including to Afghanistan, where he was wounded after 9-11. He is retired Lieutenant Jason Redmond joining us here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Jason, welcome. Thank you for being here. Mark, honored to be on. Thanks for having me. All right, an extensive, extensive resume. In fact, you know, not not blowing tooting your horn here, but one of the more impressive ones that we've had on the podcast, given everything that you've done throughout your career. Um, you know, we like to start back at the beginning, but I have to ask you real quick: given everything that you've accomplished, what did you miss in your military career? Uh, I missed not uh, serving with a tier one uh, as part of a tier one. Uh, troop. I'll just, gotcha. you know, trying to figure out how, sure, I how to say delicately that. word. I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Cause I, I did finish my career serving at a very high level, although it wasn't in a actual uh, operational capacity. And uh, that's the only thing I look back on my career and wish that's, that was my dream. That's what I wanted to do. And unfortunately my wounds kind of prevented that. All right. So let's go back to the beginning. How and why did you get in the Navy? <laughs> I grew up in a military uh, family, although my, my dad was not in the military when I was younger. Uh, he had already gotten out. He was, uh, he was in the Army uh, during the Vietnam War, although he did not go to Vietnam. He was a, um, 
He was a airborne instructor and a rigger and was working out of Fort Campbell, Kentucky and putting guys through jump school and obviously packing shoots and all that for our troops that were going overseas. So from a very young age, uh, I just had this appreciation for the military. I remember my dad, I, I, he had his old army stuff that I used to wear and he had gotten a parachute that had been DRMO'd, which is a fancy military term for they retired it and basically gave it away. Yep. And uh, I used to play with that as a kid. So I was always, you know, infatuated with this idea of jumping out of airplanes and the military. And then to go further back, both of my um, both grandfathers served in World War Two. My great uncle actually gave his life uh, flying. He was a pilot flying in the Pacific Theater and was shot down and killed. And uh, so I grew up with these stories. I grew up in the age of G.I. Joe, which was real popular. So I was kind of enamored with uh, our commandos and things like that. And from a very young age, that's what I wanted to do. So as you're going through high school, was everything geared towards that? Or did you kind of look through the college plan first and then, you know, fall back on the Navy, so to speak? No, everything was geared towards that. I mean, from about, you know, I bounced around as to what I wanted to do in the military. Um, I'll be honest, when I was younger, I originally wanted to be a pilot, but I kind of settled on the military. (laughs) Probably about five or six years old, I was telling everybody I was going to be in the military. And uh, I wanted to be a pilot like my grandfather. And then when I was about 12, I remember reading about long range recon patrols in Vietnam. And I was like, that's what I want to do. I want to be deep behind enemy lines, you know, you know, doing reconnaissance of the enemy. And, um, and then I started learning more about special operations. So I wanted to be a ranger at Green Beret. And when I was uh, 15, my dad told me about the SEAL teams, which really there was almost no information about the SEAL teams then. This is, um, this is the late 80s. And, um, and I, I, what I could find out about them was like, you know, these guys were the premier maritime unit in the world and they jumped out of planes and they blew things up and their training was some of the toughest training in the world. And I said, that's what I want to do. So I kind of locked my sights on that. And, um, and I enlisted in the Navy in a delayed entry program when I was 17. And, and amazingly enough, I actually enlisted in the Navy on September 11th, 1992. Wow. And, um, and obviously, uh, finished while I was still in high school, I was 17 years old. And as soon as I graduated high school, I headed off to boot camp. Jason, you know, this as kids, you know, you mentioned GI Joe and it's got me thinking like, you know, It made combat seem so cool, right? And there is this romantic nature of war out there. And so with that, as you start to dive deeper into this, when does it go from romantic to look at all the work that this is or look at, you know, the the kind of different sense that this thing really is that that you're wanting to do? It's a fantastic question, Mark, and it's actually one of the principal and pivotal points in my book, The Trident, The Forging and Reforging of a Navy SEAL Leader. Um, And I will say for me, it wasn't a light switch. I think it was a gradual growth and and gaining of wisdom and experience over the years. And I will say you're absolutely right. Hollywood uh, and, and current culture, even now, we tend to glorify war. And I only, you know, um, as this romantic, you know, macho thing, which it is at times, but obviously there's a very hard traumatic side of war. 
And there's also a very high level of responsibility when you are going out and, and you are taking lives on the battlefield uh, and you are losing people. Uh, the amount of damage that war creates, I mean, the collateral damage in any environment when you're in war, I mean, geez, you just look at Iraq, Syria, you look at any nation where there has been an all-out ground offensive, and it just absolutely destroys it. I mean, you go look at Europe after World War II, and, and most of Europe was absolutely destroyed by the ground and air, air offensive. So, I think when you're younger, we have this enamored view, and I did. I looked at the SEAL teams when I was young as this incredibly romantic thing. And uh, thankfully, I guess, uh, I didn't lose that when I was going through training. Um, you know, for some guys, <laughs> you know, training gets really hard and they suddenly lose that. You know, everybody has to find their, old mo their own mo motivation to make it through that hardship and adversity. Uh, for me, I managed to still stay focused on it. But it was only years later um, when I had made some mistakes as a young leader that I think I truly came to understand what it is to lead and what it is to lead men into combat and the impacts of combat, not only on the people that are in the combat, the warriors that are in the combat, but also on the impact of the people around you, uh, the impact on the enemy, the impact on uh, the civilian populace. And I think it loses some of that romantic notion. Now, I will say, I tell people, you say you see the absolute best and worst in mankind during war. Absolutely. And, and you see that in the people you serve with. You see the highest levels of courage on the battlefield. And sometimes you see, you know, the highest levels of cowardice, too. And uh, so I think it really took me a lot of years to understand that. And I really closed my book with the the evolution for me, how when I was a kid and I was 15 years old and how I looked at the trident, the seal emblem as this romantic, you know, cool thing. And, and and when I retired, it had such a different meaning to me. It was I looked at it and it was like the ultimate display sacrifice. And uh, a lot of people don't know that the Navy SEAL emblem is the only emblem in the entire United States military that the American Eagle has its head bowed. Uh, if you look at any other American Eagle, if you, you know, our symbol of America, the Eagle's head is held high. Uh, for whatever reason, you know, the forefathers to the SEAL teams decided they wanted his head bowed. And when I was a kid, I never would have noticed that. And now as I'm older, I just see the symbology of it. And it's interesting. It, it, for civilians listening, I mean, it's one thing to sit there and say, I want to climb a mountain, right? And you can scout out all the best tools and the best routes and everything else. But until you stand at the bottom of that mountain and look up, I don't think you really realize the task that's in front of you. And that's part of the reason why I asked the question, because, you know, again, everything can seem tenable or anything can seem attainable you know, when you don't physically have it standing in front of you. You, you can prepare yourself mentally for anything, but as many of you you guys who have gone through buds and their seals understand the physical ramifications of what your body and mind go through in that whole experience are vastly different than any you can read in a book yeah absolutely and no and no amount of training i try to explain this to a lot of the young kids that are out there that are interested in going to training i mean you absolutely have physically ready to go through training and they try and do everything they can um but really it, it's it is the mental grind. It is the grit and the tenacity that gets you through training. I mean, we try to tell people buds is 10% uh, 
physical and 90% mental, even though it's, you know, <laughs> even though it's gruelingly physical, uh, but it is your mind that will get you through training. All right. And with that, let's go. So you, you end up getting into buds. Uh, you look back on that experience now, toughest part of it, most memorable part. Uh, so toughest part was, um, was definitely, I mean, Hell Week was very tough. And I would say the most memorable part and the toughest part were during Hell Week. And a lot of it had to do with, with unrealistic expectations. Um, I went into Hell Week and I remember asking a buddy of mine who had already made it through Hell Week. I said, hey, man, do you have any tips? And he said, he said, yeah, absolutely. If you make it to sunrise on Wednesday morning, it, it, it gets easier. And um, <laughs> so that's what I focused on. So Hell Week starts uh, midday Sunday. I think our breakout occurred around uh, noon or so. And it's uh, breakout, you know, you're, you're locked in a room or a tent, basically, and you have no idea when Hell Week's going to start. So they want to build that anxiety no different than a, you know, an ambush occurs. And, you know, the instructors come in with, you know, uh, M60 machine guns loaded with blanks and with uh, and they just start firing off in the room. They're throwing flash crashes in the room. It's crazy. It's chaos. They're screaming at you. They're trying to uh, break apart boat crews. They're trying to break apart uh, your swim buddy and you. And it's hours of just chaos uh, before hell. And that's how hell week kicks off. So uh, I made it through Monday night, Tuesday night, got to Wednesday morning. And I thought to myself, man, you, you know, you did it. You made it to Wednesday morning. And now it's going to get easier, except it, it didn't. Um, <laughs> Thursday night was actually my toughest night of uh hell week and uh the temperature had dropped in san diego that night i went through in early march and the temperature had dropped down to the low 50s uh or, or i'm sorry high 40s that night and uh so really cold my boat crew was losing just about every race we were in and unfortunately when you lose uh there's uh there's always creative punishments for losing and we had lost over and over and over again we were at the pool at this point doing um races in the pool probably two or three in the morning and the instructors came up with this creative punishment of having the losers go stand on the 10 meter dive platform so here you are 30 some feet off the ground uh right on the edge of the san diego bay is where our pool is in coronado and the wind's just howling off the bay at about 20 knots you know it's 48 degrees and you're just standing up there and you know nothing but a pair of tiny skivvies and uh, i remember thinking to myself you've got to be kidding me you know he you know my buddy told me it was going to be easy you know make it to wednesday morning it gets easier <laughs> and uh and i thought about quitting i thought about quitting at that point um but I realized I finally slapped some sense into myself and I, I told myself, you know, if you quit, you're done. You know, if you quit, you can't control what's going to happen next. You can't control the next 24 hours, 48 hours, however long Hell Week's going to continue to last. Um, but if you quit, you guarantee failure. And uh, so it kept me going. But I remember that was a really pivotal moment for me. And, um, and you know, that, that moment stood out in my mind. And to this day, it's one of the things I talk to other people about building an overcome mindset and grinding through adversity. I just want to stay here for one second, because it's funny. 
I've done hundreds of these episodes here on the Hazard Ground and, and not bragging, but I always ask the question of people, do you get scared? Did you think about quitting? And sometimes the question, I already know the answer given who I'm talking to just because I can pick it up through the tone of their conversation. But the when you look back on it, was it a natural feeling to want to quit or was that something that you look back on and go, I was just weak-willed? Or do you kind of give yourself a pass and go, look, any human in that spot has a breaking point and would want to say, look, I've had enough. Yes, the latter. And I personally feel, and maybe they'll disagree with me uh, or, or they'll tell me I'm, I'm wrong, but I, I don't think there's anyone that goes through massive adversity like that who doesn't contemplate quitting. Um, it, we are human. And, and, you know, if somebody tries to tell you, I never thought about quitting, I say they're a liar and, you know, they can come, you know, confront me about it, but all of us in our minds, and there's a huge difference between obviously thinking about quitting and quitting. Sure. You know, that's why I talk to people about, um, I have three rules of the overcome mindset. Rule number one, don't physically quit. Uh, rule number two is don't mentally quit because what happens is when those little doubts start to crawl, crawl into your head, I don't know how much longer I can do this. I don't know how much longer I can endure this. Um, they start to multiply. They are. And you're on the slippery slope. Yep. You know, when you start mentally quitting and thinking, entertaining that mentally quitting, you're, you're, you're sliding down the slope of potentially physically quitting. Uh, and the third rule I talk about is, is life's not fair. Combat is unequivocally not fair. So if you can, if you can live by those three rules, you know, you can make it. Um, you know, you just have to accept them and keep grinding forward. So, I mean, there are plenty of times in my career I've been in incredibly hard situations, whether it was from my injuries, whether it was in ranger school, uh, whether it was in buds, um, even in some combat operations where you wondered, hey, can I keep going? Can I continue to push through this? And, you know, at the end of the day, it's continuing to grind. It's putting one foot in front of the other. But I tell people, man, it is completely normal. Uh, I think you would be abnormal. There would probably be something wrong with you if in the most enduring, grueling, miserable, painful times of your life that you didn't entertain quitting because that's just how we are. It's human nature. But the difference is the people who make it don't. Well said. Okay. Uh, you graduate buds, you become a Navy seat. Well, you graduate buds, you know, and you, obviously you still have to go through your rest of your training, but you know that, that this is something you've had a lifelong dream for. What is your feeling at that moment? I mean, amazing, you know, to Bud's graduation is an incredible thing. Uh, it, it's funny. It's a, uh, it's a momentary high because you, you graduate and then back then, and, and the way they do training now is a little bit different. Back then when you graduated Bud's, there was a huge graduation in the family and everything was out there. And then you went off to Army Airborne School and then you reported to your team. And when I say it was a momentary high because uh, you checked into the team, you didn't have your training yet. And now <laughs> kind of started all over again. Yeah. You were treated like a piece of crap. And, and the, the guys at the team were like, Hey dude, you're nobody special. Everybody here has made it through bud. So now you have to prove to us that you have the ability to be one of us and to work with us. So, uh, that was a little humbling. I remember showing up thinking, man, I'm, you know, I'm the man, I made it through buds and, uh, you got to the team and, you know, I remember we first got there and we were told to go hit the surf and I'm like, you gotta be kidding me, man. And, uh, and I definitely, I had, uh, some of the older guys at the teams who, you know, were mentoring and shaping us young guys. I mean, they, they really laid into us. 
and it forged us, um, which is good. Uh, nowadays, the process is different. I won't say it's better or worse. I, I do think the way we did it, I like the way we did it. But now guys go from buds to um, SEAL qualification training. They go to all their advanced schools, uh, free fall and uh, SEER and things like that. And then uh, they actually have a large graduation at the end where they're actually presented with their tridents. And they, they actually show up at the team uh, as SEALs already. Is that better or worse? Or just different? I'll be honest. I really – well, I personally feel like it was better the way we did it. Um, I know that there's senior leadership that pushed for it the other way because they felt like it was more efficient. Um, I will say that 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 probationary period when you got to the team and you knew you had to prove yourself, man, you had to bust your ass all the time. Um, and, I, and there were guys that I there were friends of mine that graduated buds who didn't make it because they did something wrong. You know, maybe they did something stupid or I remember one of our guys got a DUI. He was gone. Um, you know, they, they, if you did anything wrong or, you know, you, you know, they felt like you were unsafe, whatever was uh you wouldn't get your trident and it was a tough road and i remember having that uh you know that 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 you know your head on the chopping block during that time and i think it drove you harder and it gave you much greater appreciation um not to say that our current seals are not amazingly well trained and still you know setting the example for the best maritime force in the planet i mean there's a lot of legendary seals who um you know came about well, you know, this change happened probably around um, 9-11. And there's a lot of post-9-11 SEALs who are, who are legends. So obviously what we're doing is still working. But I do feel that that crucible that occurred when you got to the team during that pro pro probationary period was really effective. Yeah, it is a difficult. It's another slippery slope because it's not only just streamlining, but it's dollars, it's it's you know budgets and things of that nature that big Department of Defense has to answer to, and they try to find quicker ways to get from point A to point B because the operational tempo dictates such. But older guys like you and me who kind of went through, as you mentioned, the crucible in the past a certain way that are now going through it a different way. Again, it's not for us to say better or worse. You just look at it and know it's different and and. Not necessarily that the result and the end product is going to be different, but how you get there is different, and it shapes you, I think. I think that's a critical point. Yep, absolutely, Mark. I agree 100%. All right, so you end up at the teams, uh, and this is prior to 9-11. You end up deploying to South America several times. Uh, kind of give me some of the nature of those missions, what you were doing, and uh, you know how exciting was it for you? It was super exciting. As a matter of fact, I, I talk about in my book, and I think you can appreciate this, uh, individuals who were in prior to 9-11, we were a peacetime military at that time. Yeah. And even within the special operations forces, real world missions did not happen that often. I mean, within the SEAL teams, probably a couple of real world missions a year would occur throughout the entire SEAL teams. So all of us were, I mean, anyone that comes into special operations is hungry to prove they have the ability to do the job. They want to do it for real. Uh, we used to talk about it was like training to go play in the Super Bowl and never being allowed to play a real football game. Right. So, um, so you were hungry to do that. So what would happen is you would look at hot spots in the world and guys would try and go to the teams where they thought, you know, the next major meltdown in the world was going to occur. Well, at that time, the drug war was running hot 
and heavy in the late 80s into the 90s down in uh, South America, specifically Colombia and Peru and several of the South American countries down there. So I chose and tried to get the SEAL Team 4, and I did. And uh, and that was our focus back then, was counter-drug operations um, throughout South America. And, you know, we, we, we called it war chasing. Guys, you know, uh, there was a period of time where obviously the Balkans were melting down Bosnia and and uh, and uh, there were a lot of guys who were going over there hoping that something was going to happen. So for me, I got to uh, South America or I got to that team and we were focused on uh, jungle warfare and counter drug operations and, um, you know, grew up in that environment, learning a lot and did. Did uh, multiple deployments to Central and South America, spent quite a bit of time in Colombia and Peru, um, loved the people, uh, really enjoyed it down there. And uh, I love the jungle. There are some guys that hate the jungle. Uh, I loved it. I loved everything about Central and South America, and I enjoyed my time down there. Um, I volunteered for another trip in 2000. No, I'm sorry, in 90. Uh, 97, 98, where I went down for about three and a half months working in the Amazon basin, training uh, different special forces units uh, on, you know, different things related to, you know, counter drug operations. And just, uh, it was an amazing period of time. Here I was, this young man, I was only 23 maybe. uh, And here I was, you know, a petty officer, second class, you know, leading foreign troops and teaching them how to be effective fighters uh, and and fight this war that we were, you know, this this quasi drug war that we were fighting, you know, within our own country. Let me ask you in retrospect, as you have been through regular combat, so to speak, urban warfare, as we did in the in the war on terror, compare that to counter drug operations. I, I forgive the uh, crude nature of phrasing this, but is is one more combat than the other? Oh, absolutely. Okay. I mean, All right. Nine, nine <laughs> you know what I'm driving changed, at. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. There was no, uh, we were not allowed to engage in any direct combat with what we were doing down there. Um, you know, so I was know it that just snatch and grab then? Were you just looking for bad guys and going to grab them? No, no. We were, we were providing more uh, support to other elements. So we were training them, providing support. So foreign internal uh, you know, defense. There was a little more. Imp- Exactly. Okay. That's what we were doing. I know that there were some other units that were a little more active in, in their roles, but uh, we weren't able to do that. Now, we did get involved. I did get a touch of uh, my first taste of combat, if you will, in Colombia one night. And I tell this story in the book, but uh, we were pretty deep in southern Colombia doing a lot of different stuff down there. And we were staying in a uh, really remote Colombian special forces camp. And uh, we started uh, tracking or getting intel reporting that there was a large 400-man FARC. Uh, FARC was the uh, Colombia's revolutionary forces who basically wanted to overthrow the government, and they were working with the cartels. So they were providing security and helping move uh, drugs and all that. So obviously they did not like us. And uh, there was a 400-man FARC element that was moving towards our – Command or basically towards our camp where we were, 
and um, took uh, one night we woke up and to a ton of gunfire. Basically, the, the base, all four corners of the security outposts had gone um, cyclic and just, you know, M60 machine guns, full bore, 40 mic mic blown up all outside the wire. And it lasted about 30 minutes. Uh, finally, you know, we got a report. I mean, we, we actually were getting ready to go on E&E. We thought the uh, base was about to be overrun. We were going to destroy all our stuff and we were going to enact our evasion and escape plan. But um, thankfully, you know, it looked like it was just recon by fire and uh, and nothing really happened. But it was kind of my first taste of, uh, you know, that heart racing you know, hey, you're in, you're in the you're on the edge of combat. You know, you could be shot or killed. And you know, how do you how do you react? And you know, how do you focus on what you need to get done in the moment? Before we get to the post nine eleven part of your career, you decide to become an officer. You go from an enlisted man to an officer. The seaman admiral program, and again, this happens before nine eleven. Why did you decide to do that? You know, I come from uh, my dad would was an officer. My uh, grandfather was an officer and my sister was an officer in the Air Force. And uh, I had originally just, you know, I had achieved that first level goal of being a SEAL. And I also, um, I was an instructor at the time. Um, I was doing well in my career and I had quite a few people encourage me to go that road. Uh, because we were pre 9-11, it made sense. I was kind of at a, a decision point for my career. I could screen to go to the next level of SEAL team, uh, or I could have gone down the officer path. And, um, you know, I started looking further down the road and I said, okay, you know, I would like to do this for a career. I'd love someday to be able to command a SEAL team. Uh, I think that's the path that I want to take. So I put in for my commissioning package. Uh, didn't get picked up the first year, so I resubmitted again the second year and uh, got picked up for that uh, commission and started school in um, in August of 2001. Philosophical question for you. Um, because I've had the fortunate pleasure, people have heard me talk about you know my time in the special operations community that I was fortunate enough to deploy with those guys. And the one thing I noticed is, yeah, there was a, a team leader for you know the Green Berets and their ODAs, but none of them looked any different. None of them acted any different than any of the enlisted men. Uh, one, how much is it like that in the SEALs? And two, is there a difference between being a team leader and just one of the guys on the team? Uh, other, than the so the, other than the paperwork, <laughs> other than all so the, the admin the, crap. <laughs> Yeah, so the level of camaraderie is different. And and I'll be honest, if I had gone back and done it over again, would I have still become an officer? I don't know. That's a tough question. A lot of people ask me that. Um, I will say that in – so on the camaraderie side where everything looks the same, yes, you're absolutely right. I mean we forge an amazing brotherhood where you know everybody – we encourage leadership from the lowest man all the way to the senior man, and uh, everybody has input. Obviously, there comes a point where – there has to be a hierarchy of command in those most chaotic situations. Uh, somebody has to make the calls, uh, you know, when quick calls have to be made. And, and it also allows for, you know, if you really understand the dynamics of leadership, it's something I speak on when I speak to companies. Um, you know, the, the, 
platoon leader, you know, for a SEAL team, it's a platoon leader or a, a troop commander. You know, they're looking outward. They're looking at how they negotiate those relationships and how they get that troop to work and make everything happen. Whereas the senior enlisted, uh, in our case, it's a chief, senior chief, master chief. He, he's looking inward. He's taking care of the boys, making sure they're ready. They're focused on the tactical side of things. And um, so becoming an officer uh, in, in some ways, maybe as you get higher, you may have the ability to enforce some more policies. But even that is what I saw when I was younger. The reality is our senior enlisted guys have tremendous responsibility and have tremendous influence on how we do things and get things done. The officers may be signing off on the paperwork, but any good officer, it's the senior enlisted guys and the vast amounts of experience they're bringing to the table that drive that. And, um, so it, it, it's an amazing relationship that makes it work. I will say in special operations and, and the SEAL team specifically, obviously, because I grew up in it, we give our enlisted guys more responsibility than probably any place else I've ever seen in the military. Uh, so you could have an E5 SEAL who is running multi-million dollar programs and, and assets that in a conventional unit, it would be an officer that was running that program. And uh, so there's a lot more opportunities for our enlisted guys to get involved in things, you know, on an operational level all all over the place. All right. So you mentioned you started school in August of 2001. Obviously, a month later, the world changes. Does this does the fact that you're going to become an officer at this point delay your ability to get back into combat? I mean, it sort of did because uh, 9-11 happened only a month. I mean, six weeks after I started school, 9-11 happened. So I was actually going to class, uh, you know, when I had gone to the student center to get a cup of coffee. I mean, every one of us knows exactly where we were when we first found out about 9-11. And I was getting a cup of coffee and the kid behind the counter was kind of laughing nervously as he handed me my coffee and goes the world's coming to an end and i was like what are you talking about and he said yeah a plane crashed into the world trade center and the pentagon's on fire i was like okay that's weird so went around the corner to where the big screen tv was in the student center and started watching and a fellow teammate of mine that we both got picked up for a commission together uh he showed up also and we stood there and watched together we watched everything happen we watched the towers fall and, uh, yeah, I looked at him and I was like, we're going to war, bro. And, uh, I, I went back to my SEAL team only a couple of days later to my old commanding officer. And I said, Hey, sir, I want to be pulled from this program. I know we are, uh, I know guys are going to be deploying soon and I want to be part of it. I don't want to be sitting in school. And he was probably the best leader in the entire SEAL teams at that time. A guy that we would have, I would have followed anywhere, anytime probably one of the more respected leaders we had. I write a lot about him in my book. And uh, he very, very prophetically said to me, you know, Jay, this war is not going to, is not going to um, end quickly. He said, this war is going to go on for decades. He said, you need to finish school. We're going to need good leaders. You need to finish school and then come back uh, as a leader. So I did. I went back to school. I heeded his advice, and it was tough to watch. You know, How a lot prophetic of was that, though? Sorry to cut you off. I mean, oh, I know. I How mean, amazing is that? We, we all thought it was going to be quick, and it was going to, you know, because we're America. Like, it, we're going to go in there, kick ass, and we'll see you guys later. I mean, it, but it's unreal to hear him say that to have the foresight to know that this was going to be a long haul. Yeah. 
for and those were his exact words decades and it's so crazy to look back on it now here we are the longest war in the history of of our uh, country america yeah yeah and uh and it you know unfortunately this war against you know really we're fighting against this islamic extremist ideology it ain't gonna go away nope Um, as long as they keep creating ideologies this one will be around for a while so okay uh so you end up finishing your time in office training what what time do you actually finally get to your first deployment in the war on terror so i commissioned in uh may of 2004 and i deployed in 2005 i headed to afghanistan and um i was part of the um the troop that was involved in operation red wings oh really Um, yeah so the platoon that was shot down in the helicopter i actually was originally in that platoon and then wow. um, they, they rejocked the platoons a few months uh, in 2004. They rejocked our platoon, so I got moved to our sister platoon. So uh, there, there are two platoons and a troop, and then there's a headquarters element. So the platoon that was, or most of the guys who were on the helicopter that got shot down, were all part of my sister platoon, the platoon that I was originally in. And Eric Christensen, who was played by Eric Banna and Lone Survivor, he was my boss. Uh, Eric was my troop commander. Uh, We were on standby in Europe when that helicopter got shot down and when Lone Survivor, you know, that whole thing happened. And we immediately were on standby. We flew into Afghanistan only a couple of days after it happened. As a matter of fact, I met Marcus for the first time uh, at, at launch tool when they brought him back along with Danny Dietz and Michael Murphy's bodies. Um, and then we turned around and flew out, I believe, the next day for Afghanistan while recovery operations were still ongoing for Matt Axelson. And then uh, literally the, the day or two after that happened, we finally had the memorial ceremony. We had the ramp ceremony for Axe, and then we had the memorial ceremony for all those guys we had lost. And, I mean, you talk about a punch to the face. Here I am, my very first time in combat, and, like, my introduction to combat is the memorial ceremony for 11 teammates uh, and, and several of them who were good friends of mine, Mike McGreevy, who was on the helicopter had come and, and he was the officer in charge of that platoon, which I had originally been in. He had come to school before I got commissioned and said, Hey, Red, I want you to be my, you know, my, my two IC. Um, So, I mean, really kind of a blow. Uh, It was a tough deployment for us. But uh, and then, you know, that it was even a more tough deployment for me, because at the end of the deployment, I made some mistakes that kind of started a whole new journey. And let me just fill some of the people in who aren't familiar with what uh, Jason's talking about. Michael Murphy, Operation Red Wings. They were in Afghanistan in June of 2005. And we're actually coming up on what, what are we talking about? 14 year anniversary of this now. Um, but the helicopter, after those four guys got in trouble, Mike Murphy, Danny Dietz, uh, Matt Axelson, and Marcus Latreau, who was the only one who was the survivor, uh, when they got in trouble, realized they sent the chopper full of SEALs out there to go find them. That chopper was shot down, and unfortunately, everybody on that chopper was killed. Uh, and that, I mean, it's, it's so weird to hear you said, I mean, how fate takes a hand. It's like you wanted out of, you know, being an officer to get into combat, and you were guided to stay in. And that set of events led you to a different uh, platoon within the teams that ultimately saved your life. Like, I mean, does that ever kind of thought process oh, yeah. enter into your head and go, wow, I mean, I'm, I don't even know how I'm standing here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's interesting. So for Memorial Day this year, um, 
I, we, I had my family watch Lone Survivor. They've never watched it. And I'll be honest, I'd only watched it one time prior to this again. It's just a, um, it's an emotional movie for me to watch. And uh, I wanted my kids to see it. I wanted them to understand, um, you know, these guys were my friends and what we had been through and, and what combat looks like. I feel like Lone Survivor did, did a pretty darn good job of showing how horrific combat can be and how you have to keep pushing forward. And, and to show them, hey, listen, you know, I, I'm so lucky to be here because the firefight that I was involved in in Iraq in 2007 was as intense as this one. Um, but I got to come home and these guys didn't. So, um, so anyways, uh, just surreal. I, I'm, I'm blessed. I mean, that's why I'd never take a day for granted. I, I say God gave me a second chance and I'm trying to make the most of it. So uh, real quick, one thing I want to put out is uh, June. Um, I'm sorry, June 18th, I believe, is the uh, dedication of the Michael Murphy Museum up in New York. Yeah, I'm, I'm and, from from Long Island, so I'm familiar with everything they have out there for them. Okay, so that's happening. They have the Michael Murphy uh, golf tournament fundraiser mm-hmm. and then the ded- dedication of the museum. So I'm going to be there speaking that night. Oh, wow. Um, so if there's anybody listening, you should get to that event. It's going to be an amazing event. And obviously to honor uh, not only Michael Murphy, but all those guys who are on that operation. Amazing. Well, uh, I'm sure you'll obviously represent your brother as well, but uh, that's just an incredible honor. Um, and, and good luck, honestly. I mean, I, you know. That's got to be both an emotional moment for you, but also, you know, one of pride that, uh, uh, that you get to honor those guys. So, uh, again, congratulations and good luck. All right. Yeah, thanks, man. All right. So uh, you mentioned uh, that you, you ended up on a different path, uh, and that path uh, was to U.S. Army Ranger School. What was the background of that? Uh, how did you end up there? And uh, kind of give me the, the ins and outs of it. Yeah, I'll try and make this a real short story. Um, <laughs> it, it, it is the focal point of my book, The Trident. The reason The Trident is called The Forging and Reforging of a Navy SEAL Leader is there were two kind of pivotal, critical points in my life. The, the, the first forging was mistakes as a, as, a, as a young leader that almost ended in me getting kicked out of the Navy, uh, really because of my own arrogance. Um, and then the second, the reforging was when I was wounded years later. So, um, you know, to tell this story real quickly, uh, when I got commissioned, uh, you know, as what happens with a lot of young men who find success early, we sometimes get enamored with ourselves. And, you know, to I was only 19 when I graduated SEAL training. And, you know, over the next course of years, I found myself in more and more areas of responsibility and excelling and continue to excel throughout my career. Um, I left uh, college, Old Dominion University, ranked number one. I was uh, the student battalion commander. I came back to the SEAL teams thinking, hey, man, I'm like God's gift to leadership. And um, <laughs> really, uh, instead of really appreciation, appreciating you know, what it is to lead men in combat and how we you have to understand the, you know, the mission, the man, and you place yourself last. I somewhere started a arrogantly, you know, placing myself at a higher end of this spectrum. And it really was harming my reputation with the guys and really kind of damaging my credibility with my leadership. All of that 
Um, and all of this kind of occurred over 2004 as I got into my next platoon into early 2005 on that Afghanistan deployment. And uh, on a mission in September of 2005, I, I made a bad call. Uh, I basically, you know, we had guys, troops in contact. I basically took myself and a machine gunner off the high ground to try and come down and support those guys. And, um, and unbeknownst to me, we had air assets. They were trying to push into the area. So my choice to move created further complications and actually delayed those air assets from being utilized. On, on the surface look of that, that's not that big a deal. It, it, you know, there are some people that would say, oh, man, you know, you ran to the sound of the guns. You're willing to go down there. But it, it complicated things. And where it really became a problem is I pushed against it when my leadership was like that was a bad call instead of owning it and saying, yeah, you're right. That was a bad call. I pushed back and was like, hey, man, I made the right call. Um, you know, I went looking to take care of the guys and this and that. And the more they pushed against me, the more I pushed back. Um, so really, if I had just owned it in the moment, it probably wouldn't have been as big a deal. But I think, you know, they were, they were seeing this level of arrogance and this unwillingness to learn from this situation, which concerned them. And I had some of the senior enlisted guys that I work with were like, hey, we don't want to work with that guy anymore. So wow. I almost got myself kicked out of the teams and thankfully, I had some leadership that believed in me and they said, hey, dude, you know, we got to humble you. And, you know, since you're too dumb right now to figure out that you made a mistake, uh, we're, <laughs> we're going to shake some sense into you. And they wrote me an unofficial letter of reprimand, which, you know, in the military, an official letter of reprimand is an officer will end your career. Yep. So they wrote me an unofficial one, I think, to shock me and show me, hey, we're dead serious. You need to wake up. And it basically said, if you screw up again in the future, this letter will go on your record. But for now, it'll stay in the CO safe. You show us you have the ability to lead, we'll shred it. And then, uh, and then they sent me to U.S. Army Ranger School um, as a, an opportunity to humble myself. And you know what? It was exactly what I needed. There's more details to that story. Uh, rather interesting details, but you know, for for sake of time, I would just recommend you go, you go read the book. Uh, it is a journey of leadership, and uh, and really, I finally kind of came to grips with I wasn't as great as I thought I was. I came to understand, you know, how important it is to be a humble servant leader, and how critical it is to look at the process of the mission, the men, and then of course the leader places himself last in that equation. Do me a favor. Compare Ranger School to, to Bud's. Bud's is definitely much physically harder. There's no doubt about it. Um, but one of the things with Bud's is you get a mental break, even if it's only for a few hours. Uh, Bud's is designed that, you know, about, you know, your day starts around 4 a.m., and you will go, you know, eight, nine, midnight, depending on the day. You know, some phases of training, there's a lot more packed in. But during that period of time, you're off, you're off. There's no instructor coming around yelling at you. Uh, you know, if you want to go into town and get a meal, you can do that. You know, you are your own man. Uh, and, and there's a tremendous – I never – I never appreciated that until I went to ranger school because ranger school is straight through. Uh, you really never have a break. Uh, you know, they say there's like a break, you know, for a few hours in between bedding phase and mountain phase, but we didn't get it. 
<laughs> so you constantly have instructors around breathing down your throat 24 seven. So it is that grind. I mean, literally when you talk about two months, it's two months, 24 seven that you are grinding. And I remember in the beginning, the first couple of weeks thinking to myself, Holy shit, man, you know, this is uh, grueling and you know, this is going to be a long two months. Did you ever think that Ranger School sort of was beneath you? I know you said you went into it with this arrogance, but did you ever think yes. like, okay, you did? Absolutely. So, uh, and and Mark, I actually quit Ranger School, um, and this is all in the book. It's the only thing I've ever quit in my entire life because I showed up with a bad attitude and a chip on my shoulder. I still hadn't come to grips, even though you know they had given me this unofficial letter of reprimand i still was walking with this chip that hey i'm just being thrown under the bus i did what was right and you know you guys are you know throwing me under the bus this is you know related to personality conflicts uh whatever it was so i was taking the victim mentality instead of the victor mentality and got to ranger school and ranger school was hard and uh and grinding through um when we did the land nav course, the first time I did the land nav course was Wednesday or Thursday morning during the first uh, week of ranger school. And I had taught land nav. I had, I had walked as a point man at one point. Uh, I taught land navigation. I was very confident in my land navigation skills. So confident that when we did the land nav course at ranger school, uh, it was a frigid day in February and uh, freezing. I mean, the temperature was probably in the teens. And I remember that they took away all our warm gear and they were like, get out there and do the course. And I was just livid. I was so mad about being at Ranger School. I was mad about the fact that they took away our warm gear. I mean, just stupid. It was juvenile, um, you know, just weak mindedness is really what it was on my part. But I, I so I stomped around in the dark thinking to myself, well, you know what, I'm going to wait till the sun rises and then I'll knock out all these points because I know I have the ability to do it. And, you know, Ranger School's land nav course, no joke, man, it's a hard course. And I didn't allow myself enough time to finish the course. There are six points. You have to complete five to pass. And uh, I only had hit four by the time the time expired because I had wasted this time. So when it, when I did that and I checked in, the instructors started giving me all kinds of shit. You know, hey, the seal, it's okay. Seals don't know how to navigate anyways. You know, you guys suck on land and all this. And all that pent up rage and all that pent up um, stress that I carried with me, you know, with this victim mentality bubbled to the surface. And I basically told those instructors, you know, they could kiss my ass and they could have their course. So I, in effect, quit. For a period of time, they, they, I had to go see the Ranger Colonel and through some, you know, amazing moments uh, of fate, uh, I managed to turn <laughs> to save my career and, and turn it around. They wouldn't allow me to go back into that class, but probably the best thing that ever happened to me is I got rolled back and I was, I was in, I called it Ranger School Jail. A lot of times I hear Ranger School, they call it the Gulag. Uh, it's the holding company where you're waiting to class back up. And I was in that for a month. So here I was so arrogant thinking I was too good for ranger school. And I found myself in ranger school jail. And you know what I did every day? I walked around and I picked up trash on base. So here I was, this 13-year SEAL, combat experienced, who, um, you know, had to humble myself. 
And, and, and it gave me a lot of time to think. And, and it was during that time I really came to appreciate who I was, what made me tick, and what really it took to be an effective leader. And I looked back and realized I wasn't that guy up to that point, you know, during that period of time, that year and a half as a junior officer. So I vowed to totally change the way I lead and totally change the way I was going to go through Ranger School the next go around. And I did. It's funny you bring that up, and I'm just sitting here thinking because I just hit 20 years of my career, and I mean, I don't have any plans on getting out until they throw this old guy out at this point, but you know, people ask me about what's it like, you know, you get to 20 years and this, that, and the other, and and I think back to the time when I was a lieutenant, um, you know, a 22-year-old kid, and what you're talking about now, I went through the same thing. I was arrogant, I was cocky as hell, and I always tell people, I wish I could go back and do those years over again. I wish I could go back and be a better leader because I owed it to the people that I was in charge of. You know, and leadership is never static. You know, it's not something that, you know, great leaders, it's not that they don't make mistakes. It's that they quickly learn from them. They adapt and they change and they understand the environment and they work with the people around them and they take stock in you know who they are consistently right. and how they can get better consistently. It's not they're not waiting to make a mistake to get better. They're trying to get better along the way routinely. And, and so, and, and they own, and they own their mistakes. Yes. When they make quickly. It, yes. It, it's, they don't run from it. They, they realize that, listen, you know, it, it's not the mistake that I made. It's how I'm handling the mistake. That is the bigger issue. Um, and, and fortunately in your case, nobody lost their life over it, you know, and, and the same with me, you know, my leadership failures didn't come at, at the expense of anything other than, you know, maybe making some people irritated and angry and acting like a jerk. But beyond that, you know, I hear you talk about that and I sit here and I go, man, you know, leadership in and of itself, it, 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 the best ones in the military, it takes them 20 years to get it right. Like it takes them 10, 15 years to really form into somebody who is the type of leader that people consistently want to be around. And they didn't start that way. They grew into that. Yep, absolutely. It's a journey that never ends. And some people make it further on the journey earlier sure. years or they make it further along the journey in their later years. You know, I definitely bloomed late. Yeah. <laughs> There's something to be said for late bloomers. Okay. Uh, let's go yeah. to September 13th, 2007. Take me through that day. Uh, when you get up, is it like a normal day? Is it a normal morning? What's on the slate? What's on the agenda? And how does it go? Yeah, we were at the tail end of a very, very successful deployment working throughout Karma or working throughout the Al Ambar province of Iraq. And, uh, you know, typical day, got up, checked the message board, and, you know, we have our, you know, leadership meeting first thing in the morning to find out if there was any missions that were brewing. And we were informed that something was brewing. But when we looked at the details, we just didn't think it was going to happen. We didn't think there was quite enough uh, intel. And there was also some other parameters to it that we didn't think it was going to happen. So we were focused on, we literally were one week from going home. So we were in uh, packing gear up. We were in, you know, writing all the post uh, deployment after action reports. We were writing awards for the guys. So, you know, my day was pretty busy uh, working on all that kind of stuff. And um, as the day wore on, you know, it looked more and more, we were getting, Hey, this mission may happen. Uh, I still didn't believe it, but uh, I actually had gone to the gym to work out when one of the guys came in and said, hey, man, this mission's a go. So then it was going after the number one leader in the Ambar province at that time, a guy we'd been hunting all deployments. So, you know, OK, mindset shift. Let's go. So got all our stuff 
And uh, I was fortunate enough to, to lead the team that was doing the actual target takedown where this guy was supposed to be. And uh, we, we made entry on that target. Um, and, you know, we could tell we had just missed them, you know, signs of activity, but nobody was there. Uh, we found quite a bit of uh, explosives and IED making components in the compound. So we were going to blow that up and we were going to call it a night. At this point, it's probably 3 a.m. in the morning. Um, started noticing a lot of activity on another house about 150 yards away. And um, my boss, the ground force commander, said, hey, I want you to take your team. Um, our sniper saw some individuals flee out of that house and run over into a field across the street from it. And it appeared they were just looking to hide. So I took my team and we maneuvered up to um, wrap these guys up and find out who they were and what they know. Uh, well, unbeknownst to us, the senior leader was actually in that house and the individuals that came out were the last elements of his security detail. And we estimate 14 to 15 guys and they had a pre-staged ambush line. Um, so we basically walked right into their ambush and, uh, I was, um, my, my medic was hit first, uh, took a round, uh, PKM round directly below the knee that almost took his lower leg off. Oh, wow. I was stitched across the body, body armor, two rounds in the left elbow that I thought took my arm off. Uh, and then, um, you know, taking rounds off my gun. I took rounds off my helmet. I had my left night vision tube shot off. Um, so very intense, close range firefight. We were only about 45 feet, uh, from the shooters when they engaged us. Um, you know, the guys fell back. Uh, our, one of our other guys ran forward to grab our medic. He started dragging back. Uh, he was stitched up the side, took three rounds, but still great big guy. Uh, such an amazing beast. He, he still managed to drag himself and our medic back to the only point of cover we had, which was kind of like a large John Deere tractor tire that was about 50 feet behind me. And then behind that, beyond that was nothing but, you know, thousands of yards of empty Iraqi desert. So, yeah, I, I turned to try and move to that point of cover. And it was at that point that uh, I caught around in the face. It hit me uh, from behind, right in front of my ear, and traveled through my face and exited the right side of my nose, taking off most of my nose, uh, blowing out my my right cheekbone. What was left of the cheekbone broke and was kicked out to the right, vaporized my orbital floor. It broke all the bones above my eye. My eye dropped into that newfound hole and uh, shattered my jaw and knocked me out. Wow. Um, This is a dumb question. And I hate to ask it, but does getting shot in the face hurt more than getting shot anywhere else? Uh, you know, I'll be honest, it hurt less. Uh, and I'm not sure why, to be perfectly honest to you. Uh, my arm hurt a hell of a lot. And uh, and so in the initial moments, and like I said, I thought my arm had been shot off when I, I took one round in the um, in the bicep and I took a round on the very inside of my forearm right where it meets the elbow. So, I mean, they couldn't have done a better job of destroying my elbow if they had just smashed it to pieces with a sledgehammer. Uh, and literally, that's what it felt like. It felt like an 800 pound. A gorilla had hit me in the elbow with a sledgehammer. It felt like an electric shock traveled up my arm and a lightning bolt and spiked me in the back of the head when I got hit in the arm. Um, several minutes later, when I was hit in the face, it knocked me out. 
so I was unconscious, you know, we don't know exactly five to 10 minutes, maybe the firefight lasted about 40 minutes and literally was hurt, happening directly over me. Uh, I was laying, when I was knocked out, I was laying flat on my back. And, uh, when I came to, I literally was watching tracer fire about eight inches above me. And, um, but when I came to, um, I knew I was messed up. It was tough to think. Um, I sustained a minor traumatic brain injury from the impact of that wound. Uh, and I, but I didn't feel any pain, which is weird. Um, I don't remember being like, oh my God, I'm in a lot of pain. I just remember trying to put two and two together and then slowly coming back to the realization you're in Iraq, you're in a firefight and oh, by the way, you're pinned down. And you now have to be patient and wait for your guys to win this fight um, <laughs> in order to get get out alive. Yeah, as you're telling this whole story and I'm hearing the whole thing, uh, there's a question running through my mind. Take pre-Ranger School Jason and put him in that firefight. What's the result? You know, probably would have been a lot more overzealous, um, probably would have done something a little more impulsive. Um, you know, I talk about that there are no shortcuts to leadership, you know, and, and you as well as I know that in combat, no different in life. I talk to people a lot about this. You got to let the battlefield develop. Mm -hmm. So yeah. pre-Ranger School, younger Jason Redmond probably would have rushed in before he fully understood what was going on. Um, you think it would have gotten killed? You know, this erupt. You know, potentially, um, I did, I, you know, after something like this happens, you know, uh, so my new book that's coming out in December is called overcome and it is all about, uh, this idea. So I survived this pretty fierce enemy ambush, but everybody in life encounters life ambushes, these catastrophic moments that'll forever change your life. And when they happen, we have a natural tendency to look back on all the decisions we made and kick ourselves. And we, we literally sit on the X of a life ambush, no different than a real enemy ambush. So after it happened, you know, I was kind of sitting on the X and I really was kicking myself for the first couple of days. But when I analyzed, I realized I was like, man, you know, you really did everything right. You did everything according to our tactics and how we had trained. And, um, you know, the difference in Afghanistan, I had not. I kind of unilaterally made that decision. And, you know, I broke some of the cardinal rules of, of combat and tactics when I did that. Whereas in Iraq, um, I will say if I could go back and do it over again, my spidey sense was going crazy when we were walking up. And I, I wish I had listened to it because um, I think there were some other things that I would have done differently. And we changed our tactics after this firefight. But um, but at the end of the day, you know, when you have one of these life ambushes and you're sitting on the X, you know, you, you kind of have to reflect. And the reality is whether you did everything right or whether you did everything wrong doesn't really matter. You can't change the past. And that's what I came to grips with in the first couple of days in the hospital. Um, hey, man, no matter how bad you want back what you've lost and you want to be back to prior to what happened in this firefight, you can't. You know, you can't change the past. All you can do is shape the future. So that's what I began to focus on. What happened? What's the result physically? I mean, you lost vision in your right eye, I assume. And, and kind of give me just a rundown of where you are right now physically. 
So uh, amazingly, I did not lose vision in the right eye. Wow. It damaged my eye and it damaged the eye muscles by, you know, a lot of reconstructive surgery. So, um, and amazingly enough, when I looked straight on, I got pretty good vision. Um, anytime I break the plane of my vision, I get double vision. So, you know, if I glance, you know, up, down, right, left, I get double vision. And actually for, uh, a long period of time, I had double vision before they were able to correct that. I wore an eye patch for about a year. Um, so, uh, so on that side, on my facial injuries, they did a great job. I lost my sense of smell, um, you know, my, the way my nose was reconstructed, you know, they can't, they can make it look aesthetically pleasing and they can make it, you know, almost look like a regular nose again. It looks pretty damn good. Uh, I have one of the best nasal surgeons in the world put me back together. Um, so on, on the facial side, pretty good. You know, most people are dumbfounded that I took a high caliber machine gun round through the face. Yeah. Um, on the arm side, you know, thankfully my arm had not been shot off. Uh, it really destroyed my elbow. Uh, initially they talked about amputating my arm, but you know, you want to talk about an amazing fate moment. Uh, the doctor that happened to be the head of orthopedics at Bethesda Naval Hospital when I got there was an ex-seal. And, uh, he told me, Hey, I'm going to do everything in my power to save your arm. And he did. Um, although in saving it, um, it ended up fusing. Uh, I had so much damage to my elbow. The bone all just kind of grew back together in this, you know, just uh, literally it was gotcha. almost like this brick of bone. And, um, and they were, t they told me my best case was I was going to be fused. My arm was going to stay like that for the rest of my life. They talked about an elbow replacement, but there weren't any out there that would work for a 33 year old man. They said, yeah, you'll never be able to lift more than five pounds with this. So, um, years, uh, several years later, um, my doctor, Dan Belek, uh, amazing guy, ex-seal, you know, and I think this is the highest level of leadership and highest level of medicine is when you are humble enough to say, um, you know, your injuries or what's going on here is is beyond my level of experience and to refer you on to someone else that's more experienced, because uh, there are some leaders out there and I saw it in doctors who are unwilling to do that. Um, you know, they, they can't allow their egos to say, I don't have the ability to do this. So they continue working and actually doing more damage than good because they're outside of their knowledge base. So I got to give a huge shout out to Dan, uh, for saying, Hey, I'm going to refer you to the guy that trained me. He's at Johns Hopkins. And that guy actually agreed. And he said, Hey, there's no guarantee, but I'll go in and try and rebuild your elbow. And, uh, and he did, and, uh, it didn't give me full function. Uh, basically I've got a little bit of motion now with my elbow enough to make it more usable. Um, I can't bend my arm any greater than 90 degrees and I can't stand, I can't extend beyond about 120, 130 degrees. Uh, but it, it's enough for a good quality of life. Now, what it did do is it prevented me from ever going back operational, uh, I can't bend my left arm enough to get magazines out of my gear or control a radio, you know, anything gotcha. on the left yeah. side of my body, I can't reach. Wow. Uh, for while you were at Bethesda Naval, um, there was an orange sign on your door. Uh, and I'm sure this is referenced uh, in the book, but uh, give me a second. I want to read it to the audience here. 
but it just says this. It says, attention, to all those who enter here, if you are coming into this room with sorrow or to feel sorry for my wounds, go elsewhere. The wounds I received, I got in a job I love doing for people I love, supporting the freedom of a country I deeply love. I am incredibly tough, and I will make a full recovery. What is full? That is an absolute utmost physically my body has the ability to recover. Then I will push that about 20% further through sheer mental tenacity. This room you are about to enter is a room of fun, optimism, and intense rapid regrowth. If you are not prepared for that, go elsewhere from the management, and there is a trident stamped on top of it. Why did you make that sign? I had some, so it was a few days after I had made this decision that I couldn't change the past. All I could do is drive forward and shape the future. And I, I told myself that I'm going to stay positive. You know, it came back to that, that, you know, this leadership journey that I was on all around me. There were young wounded warriors. I mean, I mean, I'm fortunate enough. I was 33 when I was wounded and I had, you know, I'd lived a lot. I'd been through quite a bit of adversity in my life. Um, and I'll be honest that, that road, I talked to a lot of people, a lot of people say, Oh my God, when you were injured, that must've been the worst thing that ever happened to you. Well, no, the worst thing that ever happened to me was the leadership mistakes I made. And for a period of time to be ostracized by my brotherhood and told, Hey man, you don't measure up. So that road to earn back my, the trust and respect of my teammates, the longest, hardest road I ever walked. So when I was wounded, I was like, Hey man, I got this, you know, I'm going to drive forward and I'm going to overcome this too. Yet there were a lot of young uh, individuals around me who I was like, hey, man, you know, you got to set the example for these guys, too. So I had some people that came into the room that were feeling sorry for me. Uh, they basically um, I had drifted off and they had started to have a conversation. But when I drifted off, I was in that semi-conscious state where you kind of can still hear conversations. And they were having this conversation of pity. Uh, basically, you know, what a shame. What a shame we send these young men and women off to war and they come back broken and battered and they're never going to be able to be productive members of society, blah, blah, blah. So when they left and my wife came back into the room, I couldn't talk. I was trached, a stomach tube, I wired shut. I, I asked her to give me my, my notepad and I, and I wrote out, uh, I, they're really not a whole lot of thought, but I wrote out to her. I said, never again, never again is somebody going to come into my room feeling sorry for what happened to me. Uh, cause I'm going to do everything in my power to not feel sorry for myself. And I wrote out that sign and it really was kind of a stream of consciousness, um, and uh, I told her, I said, hey, put this on the door and anybody that comes into my room has to read this sign and acknowledge it before they come in. And it just took on a life of its own. A uh, firefighter friend of mine who's now no longer with us, he, he lost both sons on 9-11, John Digiano. He took a picture of the sign and wrote a blog about it and it went viral. It went all over the place. Um, you know, it earned me an opportunity to go to the White House maybe, you know, a year and a half later and meet President Bush. But it, it truly captures the essence of, in my opinion, the overcome mindset, this idea of leading always, this idea of choosing positivity over negativity. And, um, and I tell people that, you know, any, any life ambush you encounter, you have a choice. You know, when you're sitting on the X, you can either get off the X and move forward or you can just lay down and, you know, wither and die on the X or get stuck on the X for way too long. And uh, I made the choice to move. I moved. The, I made the choice to get off the X. And that sign captured that mindset. Really does. I mean, I read it. I was like, my first thought was F yeah, you know, like good for you because uh, you see that so much. And we talk to so many people. Nobody. I, I can't believe civilians don't understand this. 
None of us are upset about the wounds that we received. None of us are, are <laughs> want anybody to feel sorry for us. No, we deal with it because it's what we've learned and what we're trained to do. And the idea that people think that we don't know how to deal with it. Uh, and when I say don't know how to deal with it, I just mean the fact that there's adversity in front of us. We will all figure it out because that's what we're trained to do. Uh, and I tip my cap to the sign and the fact that you wrote it. What did your wife say to you when you wrote it? <laughs> I think she laughed at me at first and like, really? You you really want me to post this <laughs> on the door? And I was like, yes. And uh, and I think she, you know, she came to definitely quickly appreciate the power that it held. And now, I mean, it's amazing. Years later, it continues uh, to impact so many people. I didn't keep it. Um, you know, I didn't feel like it was mine to keep. I, I felt like it represented everything um, about getting off the X and overcoming that our wounded warriors needed. So uh, when I met President Bush, I brought the sign with me and I asked him if he would sign it. And then we had it framed <clears throat> with all four service emblems and the Afghanistan, Iraq, Purple Heart emblems. And then, I mean, the, I'm sorry, the Afghanistan, Iraq campaign medals, and then the Purple Heart at the top. I put a trident in there and uh, put the pictures of me and President Bush. And I put motivational words uh, for the wounded warriors as they went through their journey. And it now hangs in the wounded ward at Walter Reed. And uh, it's amazing the feedback I still continue to get from people and individuals all across the country. Uh, Secretary Robert Gates wrote about the sign in his book. Uh, Michelle Obama wrote about the sign twice in her book. It had such an impact. She wrote about it in the middle of her book and uh, at the end of her book. Um, I've had so I, somebody just texted me the other day, uh, you know, Duff, uh, you know, Duff, the, the guitar player from Guns N' Roses. Duff Kagan. Yeah, man. Yeah. He happened to be at the hospital a few days ago and he took a picture of the sign and wrote about how amazing this was. So it's pretty neat. Um, and beyond that, I've had cancer individuals with cancer who have found the sign and posted it on their door. I've had individuals that have been through accidents that have found the sign and posted it on their door. Um, so it really has become amazing the impact that this sign had. And I tell people, I mean, this, this is where it's so critical that you have to lead always. And even when you don't feel like leading, um, you have to choose that positivity and that leadership to drive forward because you never know the impact it's going to have. You know, that one moment in the hospital now has gone on to impact millions of people. Amazing stuff. All right. Uh, you founded Wounded Wear, which later evolved into the Combat Wounded Coalition, a nonprofit organization which helps out uh, combat wounded warriors and families of the fallen. You're also the founder and CEO of Soft Spoken, you know, a company that goes out and speaks with many uh, of the biggest corporation sports teams in America. What else do you have going on? We'll get to your books in a minute, but what else is, are, are you doing right now with your life? So I've uh, so we actually phased down the Combat Wounded Coalition in 2018 for several different reasons. One, uh, the speaking and the content and the training that I've been developing was really growing, and I had reached a decision point: where can I have the most impact? Uh, and there's a lot of great organizations out there. A lot of people may or may not be aware. There's 43,000 veteran nonprofits out there, uh, and I felt like you know I probably the ones that are really doing the exceptional work. I felt like I could do better by lending my voice to them sure. and focusing on the training and trying to help people as individuals. So I made that transition in 2019. Uh, so now uh, I wrote my second book in the first half of 2019, Overcome. And then I'm focused on uh, the, the leadership and teamwork and 
training for companies, teaching companies how to get off the X, you know, in the midst of failure crisis or adversity that they encounter. So uh, it's been really exciting to be able to do that. Uh, and then obviously lending my voice to different nonprofits. Uh, right now, I've started focusing my efforts on the Concussion Legacy Foundation, which is the same group that's focusing on CTE with the NFL yep. and concussion injuries, uh, because a lot of the suicide problems, I've lost several friends now to suicide. And when we're autopsying these guys who have seen extended combat and extended blast injuries, even from training, uh, they're coming up with CTE. Now it's blast related CTE, which is a little bit different. So you know, we don't know enough about these injuries, these these traumatic brain injuries. Um, so I am working with the Concussion Legacy Foundation to try and get anybody out there, uh, especially our combat veterans, to pledge their brain. Uh, they don't come collect early, uh, but at some point it is a way to give back to our fellow veterans so that scientists can take a look at our brains and be able to say, wow, this is the impact that blasts have. And they can look at you know, the biomechanics that are going on within there to be able to diagnose it and hopefully come up with even cures for uh, traumatic brain injuries, dementia, Alzheimer's. So uh, I'm really focused on that as part of the things that I'm doing. Well, Jason, listen, I mean, obviously, I, I, there's a thousand more questions I could ask you, and I wish we had more time to to get deeper into uh, the ins and outs of your story because there's a lot there. But obviously, everybody can get those details in the book, The Trident, The Forging and Reforging of a Navy SEAL Leader. You've heard him talk about it. Your new book coming out, Overcome. Uh, both of those are available where all books are sold, I assume. Yes, absolutely. Overcome is available for pre-sale. It will release December 10th. And uh, if you've ever encountered any adversity, even if it's that little voice in your mind that told you you're not good enough, you're not strong enough, or you're not in the right place to do it, this book is for you because that is what it's about. It will help you overcome and get off the X. Jason, it's an amazing story. You've had an amazing career. Uh, congratulations on everything you accomplished from a military standpoint. Best of luck with everything you're doing going forward. Continued health. Uh, I know that you're not the same as you were when you first got into the military, but in certain ways you may be better, but certainly, you know, continued physical health for you, uh, for your family and just, you know, God bless you for being able to, to, to say hello to your wife and kiss her good night and your kids every day. I mean, that, that's, that's the good stuff still there, brother. Amen to that, brother. So Mark, yeah, thanks so much for having me on and, you know, getting out all the amazing stories of our, uh, of our brothers. Jason Rebin, thanks for being part of the hazard ground. Thank you. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Okay, so I've been saying how crazy it is that it's already spring, but you know what that means? That means next up is summer. 
I know, so strange, but it's coming up quick. I personally love a wax any time of the year, but especially during those summer months, waxing really is just a must have for me. And I know a lot of my girlfriends do it too. So when it comes to waxing, I'm a big fan of European Wax Center because when you go there, you get the best by the best. Their certified wax specialists are trained in prepping, protecting, and pampering your skin, all very important things. And did you guys know that as the experts in wax, European Wax Center is also the expert of skin. I really believe it's important to exfoliate, moisturize, take care of all of that beautiful skin all over your body. And I love that European Wax Center knows how important that is too. So they just released an all new line of products that are specifically designed to pair with waxing. These new products make the best wax even better. And when you do over 7.5 million bikinis a year, um, wow, you know you're getting only the best. Plus they've added enhanced health and hygiene measures for extra confidence and care. European Wax Center is so confident that you'll love the service and products that they're offering all first-time guests their first wax free. Visit waxcenter.com to book your reservation today. Check out the new line of products and remember that first wax is free. 